Hello uh, and welcome. Um, on behalf of the LSC, I'd like to extend a warm welcome to Anwar Ibrahim, whom you all know and who requires virtually no introduction, uh, given his long uh, history in Malaysian politics uh, from the 1970s, a student activist up through his period uh, of government service, his imprisonment, uh, and his return uh, to the leadership of the opposition in Malaysia. Um, it was on short notice that we were able to lure him to the LSE, uh, and we only have really 55 minutes. So uh, without further ado, I'll give you Anwar, and uh, we'll uh, proceed through a talk and then question and answers and make the most of the time we have. Many thanks. Thank you, Professor Sada. It's always a privilege and honor to be in this prestigious uh, LSE, and uh, thank you um, for having, uh, being able to convene this at very short notice. Uh, before I begin, I would like to take this opportunity to, other than thanking the LSE, has produced some very great economies, uh, some very sometimes wrong prescriptions too. Uh, <laughs> in my, my limited experience as a Minister of Finance, I can safely say that. Uh, but at least um, it is a great institution that produces and uh, encourages such uh, an engagement on uh, clear economic uh, policies and prescriptions that have uh, shaped the course of uh, many uh, economic policies and many uh, developing economies in particular. I also like to take this opportunity to introduce um, some important luminaries from Malaysia. The, um, uh, Chief Whip and for the Pakatan Rakyat government uh, in waiting, <laughs> and um, also a member of Parliament from Gomba, uh, Azmin Ali, <laughs> and um, a State Executive uh, Councillor under the leadership of uh, Chief Minister Lim Guan Ing but representing uh, Pati Kaandilan, who still remains with Pati Kaandilan and not joining the frocks, uh, uh, Abdul Malik. <laughs> some other colleagues for me, including uh, former Senator David Yeo. <laughs> All right. So, um, I made a sign with this uh, topic, religion and pluralism in a divided world. I thought I should be discussing economics, but then uh, uh, I wouldn't dare because it's the London School of Economics. <laughs> so it's best safer for me not to uh, argue with you in a subject you know best, at least presumably so. <laughs> and now let me begin with a cryptic line from T.S. Eliot's Burnt Norton. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. But I say, bear it, we must, for indeed, it is stark reality of our world that certain religious groups hold that only certain fundamental doctrines may lead to salvation. This exclusivist outlook, unfortunately, cuts across the board as between religions as well as within the denominations. In Christendom, we have seen the schisms and consequent upheavals arising from this sense of exclusivity. Within Islam, Sunni, Shia, Sufi denominations have had a checkered history and continue to present the world with a scenario of violence and bloodshed. 
the backlash against Muslim migration to Europe has become more acrid in the aftermath of 9-11 and 7-7 with right-wing political parties benefiting from the new bout of xenophobia and fear-mongering. Now, Jalaluddin Arumi in the Masnavi back in the 13th century. The lamps are different, but the light is the same. It comes from beyond. If thou keep looking at the lamp, thou art lost. For thence arises the appearance of number and plurality. The verses couldn't be more relevant today. Despite rancorous debates linking religion to conflict and discrimination, it remains a fact that at a personal level, religious experience boils down to certain universal concepts. Now, the strength in Southeast Asia, including Islam in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, for the last hundreds, uh, few centuries, is its inclusivity. If you understand and follow the uh, history of Islam in Indonesia, which scientists, of course, have more claims to have better expertise, um, it is inclusive. It has taken a more moderate position. It has argued the case of whether it is Piagam Jakarta for universal outlook or an Islamic state. But the debate was never rancorous. And at every, when decisions are made, it's always uh, in taking into consideration uh, the interests of the majority Muslims, the Christians, and the Hindus. So, I must claim, in case a sense of confidence about Malaysia, until, of course, recently, when uh, the word Allah, caning, and the whole interpretation of Islam becomes somewhat exclusive and racist demands overtake this inclusivistic uh, brand of Islam. There is, uh, that's precisely the reason why I believe that um, there need to be a better appreciation of inclusive Islam for the Muslims and the recognition of a multicultural pluralistic Malaysia and world. We long for knowledge, peace and security amid the mysteries and uncertainties of the universe. In our disjointed world filled with ugliness, violence and injustice, religion gives all of mankind an opportunity to realize values which unify humanity despite the great diversity of climes and cultures. I've, I want to give a good opportunity for you to have a discourse and ask me uh, questions. The difficult ones will be answered by my two other colleagues, <laughs> and uh, so, the, so that I can give only politically correct answers. Um, so, uh, again, this is why the discourse on religious pluralism must deal with fundamental questions of freedom of religion as by association the freedom of conscience. The question arises as to whether it is the diversity of religions which make the divided world more divided or the denial of religious freedom that causes it. If the Quranic proclamation that there is no compulsion in religion is to mean anything 
then it must surely be the, that imposition of one's faith unto others is not Islamic. So once uh, we say in Malaysia, our position in Pakatan Raya, say, okay, we respect the demand, the claim of our Muslims to improvise and recognize the Sharia courts for the Muslims. But the moment you use the courts to compel the non-Muslims, transgress the fundamental principle enshrined in the Constitution, then of course we draw the line. This is, of course, this has become rather contentious because when you deny um, rights of non-Muslims or you use the some obscure Sharia interpretation to impose on the non-Muslims. So I think um, uh, our position is quite clear here. I think what you need to do is to educate the Amno leaders. <clears throat> because uh, my understanding is not just um, a politically correct statement or just to appease uh, non-Muslims. There are many Muslims here. But the Quranic principle that I believe if you read the Asian Renaissance, I use this uh, quite extensive this argument about uh, the uh, Quranic injunction about tribes, uh, uh, the different tribes, races, color, creed, in order that you learn and appreciate one another. Lita'arafu. Um, if you recognize the, that is pluralistic in essence. Of course, this is also the position taken by other religions in Christianity, Judaism, Sikhism, Hinduism, the Guru Granth Sahib. Why I choose a Sikhism? Because uh, Karpal Singh the other day was asking, Ah, no, you only quote Quran and um, the Bible. You know, we also have Guru Granth Sahib. <laughs> so I say, Okay, I'll make it a point and I will release it to him soon. Uh, the Guru Granth Sahib tells us that he who sees that all spiritual paths lead to the one shall be freed. But he who utters falsehood shall descend into hellfire and burn. The blessed and the sanctified are those who remain absorbed in truth. Which is a very universal precept. Now, it is unfortunate, therefore, that the wisdom of Islam's classical scholarship are forgotten. Ideological rigidity remains the stumbling block to progress and reform. Now, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, the 8th century Hanbali legal scholar, offers us a more vivid case. In the case of the Zoroastrian practice of self-marriage, where men are encouraged to marry their mothers, this is an act deemed morally repugnant from the Muslim perspective. When asked whether the Muslim state at that time, 8th century, should recognize such unions, this scholar, Al-Jawziyah, affirmed the rights of the Zoroastrians provided their cases not be presented in a Muslim court and the said practices are deemed permissible within their own, legal, their own legal tradition. So, he said, the Muslim state, that in the context even of a Muslim state, what more the Malaysian state, which is uh, neither Muslim nor, I don't know what it is right now, it's a very confused state of affairs. But 
the Muslim state has no business to interfere. Now, let me conclude because I'm looking forward to this question stuff. <laughs> now, if we look at history as servitude, I mean, I'm just still uh, paraphrasing T.S. Eliot, um, the great poets. Uh, history may be servitude, history may be freedom. You can choose. Um, I should quote some economics for a change. Yeah? If we look at history as servitude, we could gloss over the historical perspective and consign it to the realm of academia on the ground that we are already in the 21st century. Now, Turkey and Indonesia are clearly blazing the trail of democracy for other Muslim nations to follow. Now, one of the most popular topics when I was teaching at Georgetown, for example, traveling across the United States and universities, uh, is Islam and democracy. I see. why is this a problem? You don't talk about Christian democracy or Hindu in democracy, only Islam. And forgetting the fact that the largest Muslim country in the world accepted Islam and the transition has been largely peaceful. Not recently, not because of the dictator Washington. In 1955, they had the first democratically elected uh, I mean, uh, government and uh, largely peaceful uh, elections, and you can read this from Herbert Fifth, uh, Decline of Constitutional Democracy in Indonesia. And um, I was just, I've just finished meeting with Al Gore and Mary Robinson just now. And uh, always I told uh, Al Gore, I said, look, you know, elections uh, in Indonesia in 1955, far more democratic than Florida in 2000. <laughs> So, in Southeast Asia, Indonesia has already reached the finishing line, while her Muslim neighbors are still stuck at the starting block. So, history is indeed freedom, if indeed we are prepared to learn its lesson. So, let me uh, close again from my... and then draw on my perpetual reserve in Eliot's four quartets. What we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. Terima kasih. Thank you. field some questions, uh, a couple questions from the audience, um, yes. bundle them up and then give you a chance right. to respond. Yes, Professor, and you give instructions, sir. Thank you. <laughs> yes, questions, please. Yes, 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 please, sir. you want to take them yeah. yourself? Yeah, all right. Uh, I just want to ask you about, right next to Malaysia, you have two countries that are basically Buddhist, Thailand and uh, Burma. And in one of them, in Burma, there's been this terrible repressive regime for so long now. And only a couple of years ago, many of the Buddhist monks there were killed. And there was an outcry from around the world. But it seems to me, I would like to know your personal opinion on the, the situation of Aung San Suu Kyi and her continued imprisonment there and house arrest. And why is it that ASEAN maintains its constant silence 
over the years of speaking out as a block against the imprisonment of Aung San Suu Kyi. Why is it... I mean, Singapore seems to take in a number of the Burmese leaders now and then when they have medical problems, but they're afraid to speak out against the regime there. Why is it that ASEAN maintains a silence over her condition of house arrest, but also your own opinion on this? Incidentally, in the last uh, few days, um, we circulated an open letter by MPs, members of Parliament of Malaysia, demanding not only the release of Aung San Suu Kyi, but also the end of oppressive measures by the military junta in Burma, uh, which means our position is quite clear. The ASEAN position, although I, I view ASEAN in many regards quite positive, but then in terms of uh, their attitude and policy towards Burma is quite fundamentally flawed. Because uh, initially, for the last decade, they talk about constructive engagement. Was there any engagement? No. Certainly not constructive. What happened, just some interest groups, tycoons go, there's more construction <laughs> on behalf of these companies. So you have construction projects and not constructive engagement. Uh, now, what is, for example, our position as an alternative uh, government? I would say we sit our stand. We're not sending troops to go and fight them, but at least take our stand. Why are we um, in the ASEAN in the first place? We want it to be um, independent, um, for freedom. We cherish the spirit of democracy and freedom. Why are we silent against these atrocities? There's been some change. I mean, I must uh, take cognizance of the fact that the ASEAN foreign minister did make some uh, remarks, and, and due to EU pressure, we have denied the chairmanship to the Emily Huntra in Burma, which, which is quite uh, an achievement. But that's not enough, because the atrocities continue. They promise to have elections by the end of the year. What elections are you talking about? Um, those days under Suharto, remember in Indonesia, they say, yeah, we have elections, general elections. Actually, it's, it's not general elections, the election of generals. <laughs> so it's time that we in ASEAN take the position, we, we, it's not our business to interfere in all cases, but in clear abuse of human rights, of oppressive measures against people, then you have to take a stand. Why do you talk about Darfur? Why do you talk about the, the, the um, imprisonment of the whole entire Gaza Strip? Why do you uh, oppose uh, American occupation in Iraq? You can't take a stand. I, I think consistent with this universal moral precepts, we must take a position. Thank you. Yes? Yes? share in Islamic traditions. My question is, once you've gotten in, how about getting out? Um, I'd like you to talk about the issue of apostasy, whether once people become Muslims, whether it's you know, possible to renounce um, Islam after that. I'd like you to elaborate on that. Thank you. All right. When I talk about inclusivity, it must base, be based on some fundamental agreements, and in our case, constitutional guarantees. And these constitutional guarantees, to my mind, is not inconsistent with the higher objectives of the Sharia. We call it maqasid of the Sharia. 
what people interpret Sharia differently. But my understanding of the Sharia is from the time of Al Ghazali, Hujjatul Islam Al Ghazali, and uh, lately, of course, um, uh, articulated uh, by Ibn Ashur and Shatibi and some of the traditional classical alim. I may just throw this name so that uh, sound a bit more academically impressive. <laughs> <laughs> After all, I'm, I'm, I'm giving a lecture in a very impressive uh, academic institution. I don't want uh, Seydal to feel, look, Anwar is just giving just a political lecture. So I have to, I mean, <laughs> all right. <clears throat> now, uh, but I'm serious. You can make reference to these people. I mean, you can quote. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just uh, not taking this lightly. What are the fundamental principles in the, in the maqasid, higher objective of the Sharia? Is freedom of conscience. Sanctity of life and property, freedom of expression, and human dignity, dignity of men and women. So you talk about Islam without gender equality, I have difficulty in comprehending it. You talk about Islam and you have ISA and don't allow people to speak up. You know? And now they are referring me to the select committee to suspend me as a member of parliament. I mean, this, this is a rotten joke. So, when you talk about Islam, the maqas, the higher objectives is important. Now, you talk about freedom of conscience. Okay. Uh, there is a recent publication by this very known uh, Usufiq, Islamic jurisprudence scholar, published by the International Institute of Islamic Thought, which I have been associated with for some time, by Sheikh Taha Jabir Al-Alwani. It's difficult for you to memorize the name. <laughs> it's a long name. But... His thesis is this. As Muslims, as Christians, you never, I mean, you don't encourage people to lead because it's a question of faith. You have to understand. It's not something that you take lightly. Today, become Muslim, tomorrow, Christian, and day after. No, you don't. So you don't encourage. You ask me, do I encourage? No. Do, you want, do I want my children to leave Islam? No way. But who decides ultimately? Is the individual? Is that man or woman? So we are not, we can encourage, we can persuade, but we cannot compel. If you compel, you're asking her or him to lie and become a hypocrite. Because faith is a matter of the individual, between him and God or Allah. Oh, don't, here, safe to say Allah, right? <laughs> so the bottom line, do I encourage? No, I don't. I'm not going to, to, to make it easy to appease non-Muslims. I mean, you ask any devout Christian, he would say the, give the same answer. But can you compel? Can you say, no, if you, you do it, we will uh, strangle you or we will beat you up? No, you can't. Because finally, it is his or her decision. That's my answer. Now, how do you regulate it through procedures? That you can discuss. You know, how do you, because to become Muslim, you have to regulate, you have to become Muslim, you regulate. But you cannot. The problem in Malaysia is that you, essentially, you, are, you just cannot. So I, 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 I'm not making easy because Uttar Sam Malaysia will put a headline, Anwar says Muslims can become Christians. <laughs> yeah, you know what uh, the Amno papers are all about. I'm not making it easy. You see, I, the issue of faith is important. I've been involved in Islamic activities um, and I make no apologies for that I'm I, I trying to live as a practicing Muslim you see? but who are you to go and compel people to see issue of faith is something which is uh, between as again the individual and God 
Huh? Because um, in in <coughs> in the Quran, the verse is La ikra hafid din. There's no compulsion in religion. Because if you are convinced, you know there's the truth. So I'm convinced. But uh, I'm in no position to convince you beyond this. I try and persuade you, but it's your decision. So that's my position. And I think and I believe there's Islamic position articulated by Sheikh Taha in his book, No Compassion Religion. Yes. No, in the Constitution, Malaysia is, is Islam is a religion of the Federation. Kadilan uh, accepted that, PAS accepted that, DAP accepted that. It's no issue. But Islam is a religion of the Federation with a clear constitutional guarantee on the freedom of religion. Like Malay language is the official Bahasa with a clear guarantee that the other languages must be allowed to flourish. And even on the Malay privileges, I mean, I, I, I differentiate between the new economic policy, which I have uh, called in, the, in my Malaysian economic agenda to dismantle, uh, but the Malay privileges, Bumi Putra, we say is a constitutional um, uh, uh, statement or guarantee, which will keep. The issue is the abuse. The issue is denial of basic rights to others. The issue is marginalization or injustice. So we have to deal with these specific issues. Yes. One of the objectives of the law is for it to um, appear to serve justice. And um, following the judicial breakdown of, um, in Malaysia in 1989, do you think um, the Malaysian judiciary will ever be able to recover from this shattered public confidence in the system? Thank you. Of course it will when Pakatan takes over. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not a political, just a political statement. I'm, I'm, it's my conviction. I know what, what um, uh, judicial independence is all about. I know about uh, a judge who considers all my testimony irrelevant. I know when they prefer a, a charge which has no uh, basis whatsoever. I, I, I went through that personally. And I think there is wisdom in that. Not that I want to be dragged to jail again. But there is wisdom. Because you understand. People ask me after I was released in 2004, Anwar, what have you learned? I said, when I talk about freedom, I'm very passionate about it. It's just not an academic exercise. It's not an ideological position. It's what I believe. I've seen for myself. I've experienced it. I've seen how people have to suffer. And uh, no way will I compromise on that. Freedom must be respected and honored. Not only for ex-deputy prime minister, for any citizen, any racial group. It can be Benghok, it can be Kogan, it can be Anwar. It does not matter. You want to lead the state, the state must protect the right of every individual and the judiciary must be there as a pillar, not as uh, under the thumbs of the executive, not as the lackeys of the executive. When they wanted to, I mean, when they did convict me, I stood up and I said, yes, I have a back problem, but at least I have a backbone. <laughs> the judges did not have. Have anything changed? Actually, no. 
They have not. I have uh, hardly any confidence in the system. Okay. Uh, and, and we give ample, incontrovertible facts and evidence to support our argument. It's not just a political statement. But since uh, we're addressing this issue tomorrow, I will leave it, uh, the details tomorrow at Westminster University. All right, next. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, yes, yes. yes yeah. Um, how would you reconcile your enlightened views on Sharia with the fundamentalist views of PAS? Well, let, let me say this. Some very contentious issue says Allah issue. Do you consider as fundamentalist uh, neoconservative view of PAS? No. PAS has taken a very bold and radical shift. We have to recognize that. And, and in fact, in many, in, in, uh, when I convened a special meeting of all religious leaders of various religious denominations, I invited Ustaz Hadi and uh, Wabi Kitsiang and Lim Guan Ing there with uh, other party leaders, and I made a special reference to the fact that this Allah issue is essentially resolved because of the uh, position and the uh, preparedness of the past leaders to take a stand. On the caning, similarly, on the caning issue. Because the hypocrisy, you know, the, the rich and famous drink in Malaysia. And there they are one, you know, Muslim, non-Muslim, they're together. They're united. <laughs> but when it comes to the poor girl, you punish them. You punish her and cane. Adultery, three girls were cane. Where are the men? So adultery with whom or with what? I don't know. <laughs> so you, to me, it's more a mockery of the Islamic laws. So I think we should commend past on that. We, we may defer some issues. I mean, we defer with, within the party in Kandilan or with, with the AP in some issues. But I think you have to be prepared to see and to accept the fact that there's been a change, a preparedness of past to, to not only to accommodate, but to, to clear. You know, in the last four years or five years, issue of Islamic State was not raised. The issue of um, not in the manifesto, not in the presidential address. But they say, well, they may change if they are in power. But see, they are not going to be in power. Kandilan will be not in power, not the AP. We together will be in power and we have crafted the common platform. The Pakatan Rakyat common platform. Go to the website and, and see. Yeah, yeah, because we took pains in working on it. I tell you, it's hard work because it's not just, uh, you know, Barisan uh, National where I'm not just decide. In this case, we went through every single sentence, every word to make sure that the DAP, PAS, and Cardilan could agree because this is a common platform. It augurs well for the country, frankly. Yes. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yes. Not should you when we take over. I mean, a bit more positive, lah. I mean. All right. Now, orang asli or indigenous people, um, the Kadazan or the uh, uh, national and uh, national land rights (NLR) or 
customary land in, in Sarawak, for the matter. Or even Felda settlers, yesterday in Parliament, I brought up. After 10 years, paid every single loan to the government. They have not got their title. Okay. Similarly, the treatment of Ora Asli, or the um, indigenous uh, peoples of Sarawak, is a huge problem. And I cited another example in Marotai, in Kalabakan, in Sabah. The state government, the chief minister, instructed to just acquire land. Poor Malay farmers and uh, some Kadazan do so. I just took. So I think the position, our position must be to protect the uh, rights of every citizen. In this country, of course, like in Sarawak, the position of the Sarawakians, particularly the indigenous tribes, are completely sidelined. When uh, we started criticizing the chief minister, the state government, what does the BN Dayak leader say? You know, these Dayaks, you can't give them the land. You give them, they will sell. So we have to keep them you see? and give to our friends the timber tycoons. <laughs> he didn't say that. I added on to that. <laughs> but that's precisely. I mean, you want to protect them. Of course, I mean, th there is a point here. You give the land, they sell. So you must ensure that there's a certain mechanism put in place. What are governments for? If you don't provide mechanism to protect the rights of the people. You know? Rich or poor, it does not matter. If you are entitled to that land, it's your right. This is where we have to learn to accept some ground rules. Yes. Yeah, please. I'm of your age of Malaysian. I left Malaysia a long time ago. In your young days when you're coming up in the politics, you were a firebrand. You promoted Islam in a big way. You were in government for a long time, and the ISA didn't bother you. Now, after your experiences, you're talking all about removing ISA, talking about Islam in a way that seems enlightened. My question is, why that? And do you think Quranic values are acceptable or applicable to modern Malaysia, a plural Malaysia, where Indians, Hindus, Christians, Buddhists also have to coexist. Thank you. Thank you. You mean to say I'm not a firebrand now? <laughs> oh, no, 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 that is not a compliment. I am, I remain so. But, but um, it's good. I mean, Churchill used to say, if you're not a leftist, a communist, a firebrand in the 20s, and then, uh, but you remain so in the 60s that you have a problem. Which means it is good for the young to be idealistic, to be tough and strong in their values and conviction. It's okay. Otherwise you become students of the universities in Malaysia. <laughs> <laughs> now, yes, uh, again, and uh, thank you. I mean, no apologies. Yes, I was young. At that time, you know, in the, in the 70s, uh, Malays, Muslims feel a lot insecure. We see so much hypocrisy in the government. Even those days, we say they talk about uh, Malay rights and things like that. And they see they enrich themselves. Although it's nothing compared to what's happening now. But still, we sense that. And there was no security, there was no certainty, there was no clear policy. Even a language issue, they criticized me to say I was promoting Bahasa. I do, even now. But you don't promote Bahasa at the expense of English. You know, where in most developed countries, successful countries, they have English. They have always a strong second language. You go to any premier universities in the West, they do encourage, in fact, compel you to have a strong second language. 
So I am much for that. Um, but um, and that on the ISA, to be fair, I, I, I was detained in the ISA before I joined the government. Uh, whether it's a mistake or not, I don't know. But I did uh, <laughs> uh, suffer. And then um, one of the statements I made was to repeal the act. Yes, in the government, there were limitations, yes. I cannot absorb myself entirely from the mistakes or policies of the government, yes. But you must know, you follow the rules. As Deputy Prime Minister, I made a statement in the parliament. It's time that we reform. And, and the, the draconian provisions must be amended. Was I successful? No. I wanted to amend the University University College Act. Was I successful? No. Did I make it known? Yes. You read Asian Renaissance, written early 1990s and published in 1996 on freedom, on democracy, on the condescending view of the leadership in many Asian societies. It was written. Probably that was one of the reasons why I had to be kicked out. So I think in that sense, I'm, I remain quite consistent. Enlightened Islam. Yes, even now I promote Islam. I want people to understand Quran. I mean, I've used Quranic verses here. You see? But can you say, well, uh, what about the Hindus and the Buddhists? You want to quote uh, Bhagavad Gita, Ramayana, and the dialogue between Arjuna and, and Krishna? I can. Is that anything inconsistent with my values or my understanding? No. It's a great epic. You see, I, but issue of faith is something else. I mean, you ask the... Um, should be, uh, because I read the Bible, therefore I must pray like the Christians. Not necessary. But universal values, the need for ethical strength and basis, yes. So, I, uh, my, my response about uh, the need to understand, because it's important. You cannot deny. You can be, you can be um, an atheist, you can be an agnostic, you can be an ardent doctrinaire communist, um, reject religion. But it's a fact that after thousands of years, religion continued to be dominant, a dominant influence in the lives of our people. It is for those who believe, I can't force, I mean, you don't believe, it's, it's, uh, your decision, for those who believe, it is better that they have a better comprehension and understanding of the religion, otherwise, Mary Robinson cited this case this morning about the treatment, the oppression towards women. Among Muslims, and even she mentioned examples of some Christian missionaries in Africa. And she said, and Hindus, and some of the practices. And she said, very important, it's not an issue of religion. It's an issue how religion has been manipulated to be instrument by the oppressors. Quote, Mary Robinson, remarkable lady. I told her to come and help Malaysia a bit. She says a bit later. All right? Yes, please. Yes. Because she is denied freedom of expression, she's denied freedom, full stop. Mm. Would you agree? And how will your government change that? Mm. 
our position is banked to constitutional guarantees. Um, only a few UMNO racist uh, UMNO leaders, they call uh, Chinese, Indians, Pendatang. Okay? And recently, of course, uh, Najib's political secretary, uh, Prime Minister Najib's political secretary, Nasser Safar, the problem with the Indians, they come as coolies. Uh, and uh, the problem with Chinese is that, you know, some of their women, that they came as prostitutes. Uh, was there any action? No. They had some let compromise, you just uh, resign. But how do you condone and um, accept? within your mistress issues. In our case, uh, a member of parliament at the time is very critical in terms of numbers. When Zulkifli Nordin went on questioning our decision on Allah, etc., we made a decision to sack him. To me, it's a basis of principle. He's a friend. He was in the original legal team, at least one of the assistants. But uh, you have to accept the policy of Kaandilane Pakatan Rakyat. You can promote Islam. You cannot denigrate the others. You cannot go against state policies of the party. If you do, we can be less in terms of numbers. I, in fact, I offered the leader of opposition to Wabi Kitsiang because Kaandilane numbers dropped. We have too many frogs. But uh, of course, Wabi Kitsiang Hadi then wrote in and said no. I should remain as a leader of opposition. But my point is, we're prepared to take that uh, risk of losing a position of leader of opposition. But a matter of principle, we cannot condone these excesses. So the similar position of women, I don't believe that women are actually generally treated as uh, third-class citizens. But certainly, there are a lot of areas where opportunities for women are not given. I mean, relatively better many, than many other countries. But look at how the Sharia courts decide on the issue of caning, or for, for beer drinking, for adultery. Clearly, uh, it is, it is um, transgression, to my mind, to the spirit of justice in Islam. And I've said it, I said it yesterday again in, in Parliament and, and told the uh, um, members of Parliament from Barisan National, including from Amno, I said, enough of this hypocrisy. You talk about uh, this uh, drinking of beer. You are silent about the, you know, the culture of drinking among the rich and famous. I sit in front. So I think uh, a lot needs to be done. We must support the civil society activists among the women to continue to engage, make the demands. Uh, the majority of them, I mean, in my family household, I have five daughters. And I'm in the minority, <laughs> but, but uh, I think it is, it is really um, very enlightening because they have very strong views on these issues. If I say, no, but there are 50% of our ladies in universities, they say, why not? Why don't you have uh, even 30% of our professors and deans and vice chancellors? Yeah, I say, okay, okay, okay. And then I say, no, um, many of them, they say, well, service. They say, why is it the director general, secretary generals, directors, Hardly 20% are women. See, they are smart. Not only a matter of smart, but they are right. So I think we must be prepared, particularly the men, also to accommodate and change. Okay? Yes.
Yeah. Do you believe that ASEAN is a good example of multiculturalism at the regional level? Maraming salamat. <laughs> I'm speaking Tagalog. You don't appreciate it. <laughs> no, um, no I, 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 to be fair, to be objective, uh, ASEAN success initially, okay, it was, I must consider it's a phenomenal success. You know, the, the more contentious issues in southern Philippines, southern Thailand, did not actually embroil the region to a major uh, conflict. There's always these this regular meetings, engagement helped immensely. And uh, you look from the 70s, 80s, from the um, eminent persons group, uh, the initial charter, it was quite impressive. I'm, of course, disappointed with the recent ASEAN charter. Uh, because after 30 years, we have, you know, we have Tanot Koban those days, and uh, uh, Tun Razak, and Adam Malik, and uh, a, a few, I mean, the ASEAN leaders then articulate a, a, a better, brighter vision for the region. But since then, what happened? EU has surpassed us, okay? Um, no tangible, the failure mainly is in the economic sphere. The imperative now in any regional caucus or regional grouping is economics. And I think very little is done or have been achieved in terms of trade and economic uh, relations. And, and this is where I think ASEAN must explore. But the issue of human rights and freedom, although Indonesia is a startling example that things have changed, hopefully Thailand can resolve uh, this yellow shirt, red shirt uh, battle. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, Farid Zakaria talks about fragility of uh, democracies in the region, and this is worrying, except for Indonesia, surprisingly so. And I think Larry Diamond talked about uh, democratic or democracy recession, not only economic recession, but democratic recession, Larry Diamond. And this is, of course, more of a concern to me because what is ASEAN if it's not an institution, a grouping that promotes freedom? defend human rights, uh, protect region, of course, um, and resolve uh, outstanding conflicts. Uh, you see, uh, uh, Burma, as we have alluded to earlier, has not been able to be resolved by ASEAN. Yes. Um, it's a very great privilege to hear you, and I'm very grateful that I'm able to be here. I just have one question to ask you. Religion and pluralism in a divided world. From what you've been saying, I have the impression that you believe that religious law should take precedence over a state's law. No. I, 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 um, you see, as a believer, you ask me the Quran, I believe in the Quran. Um, do I support the Sharia uh, uh, courts, institutions? Yes. Um, how do we then expand and extend the laws? I said, no, that this has got to be resolved in a democratic process. Now, the issue is, should you use the Sharia courts to compel and transgress into the affairs of non-Muslims? No. Do you need, are you happy with the application of laws in the Sharia courts? No. In the implementation of the Sharia court? No. So how do you then resolve? You accept the, uh, the place. There are constitutional guarantees now, which is pl pluralistic in nature, applicable to all. 
But there are certain aspects, mostly family law, inheritance, some basic rights, uh, moral code, which is applicable to the Muslims, can be adjudicated by the Sharia courts. That's all that I'm suggesting. I don't, I don't, I'm not suggesting the full application of uh, the Sharia laws for Malaysia, because uh, that has to evolve, people have to discuss, and this is, if you accept a democratic process, you have to contend with the decision of the people. But for now, the Sharia courts is confined, not only for now, but forever. The Sharia courts must be confined to, confined to the affairs of Muslims. Uh, but um, there are calls, for example, to extend. But there is a danger, because you are not prepared. You have to educate and get people prepared. If you are not prepared, then you have this case of uh, caning, which, is, uh, which runs contrary to my mind. The whole spirit of justice. Because what is, after all, the principle of laws? Is to dispense justice. It's not, you can call it Islamic or Hindu or Christian or secular or civil. If, it, if the justice cannot be guaranteed, then the whole raison d'etre, rational of the law is flawed, or is, is rejected to my mind. Yes, one more question, yes. <laughs> I give a chance to look for later. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. We'll give the last. Dato, so would you call Malaysia a circular state or an Islamic state? Yeah. Can you ask the last question? I answer together. <laughs> question. That's why I wanted to avoid his question, because I anticipate it's going to be damn difficult subject. <laughs> now, but, but let me just um, respond to the earlier question. Is Malaysia an Islamic state or a secular state? Now, let me uh, uh, clear the air here. Is it an Islamic state? Of course it's not an Islamic state. Because Islamic state, by Islamic state you mean the total application of the Sharia. But it is Islamic in the sense, if, if we can ensure there's freedom of conscience, freedom of expression, sanctity of life and property, and protect human dignity. To me, the higher objectives of Islam, Islamic State, is achieved. Is it Islamic State in the sense that you apply rigidly the uh, specific aspects of the Sharia laws? Then, of course, it's no. So it, is, it depends on how you understand, what, how do you perceive Islam, Islamic State. I'm not avoiding the, the question. So that is why when people ask me, I say, look, first, what do you mean by Islamic State? There's a huge array of arguments here. Is it a secular state? It's no, I mean, it's not secular in the sense of uh, you, you, uh, you see, secularism can be anti-religious, secularism can be a-religious, secularism can mean a complete separation between religion and state. 
You don't have a complete uh, separation in the United States, although it's called a secular state. If you reread Tocqueville's Democracy in America, then you realize the essence of religiosity, the habits of the heart, it comes from uh, essentially issue of faith. I mean, this was well expounded by the French philosopher. They say to understand American society, you ask the French. So Tocqueville gave this beautiful... Uh, so I think, uh, then, if people ask me, then if you, you, are, you are avoiding secular Islam. I say, if you ask me, then look at the constitutional guarantees in the Malaysian constitution. I am for that. So they become very specific. Don't argue about slogans. Islam ka, secular ka, to me is not uh, a critical point. You ask me what you want Malaysia to be. You must guarantee freedom of conscience, freedom of expression. <laughs> yeah, sanctity of life and property in a city. <laughs> Seda is helping me because he wants me to avoid the last question. Let me just say this. Yeah, because, because the, the, the room is going to be used by the next speaker, I think, yeah. Right. Now, of course, I have said I cannot absolve myself from the entire policies of the state. My main weakness, my backache. <laughs> That's physical. But, of course, you are part of the system. Can you absolve entirely? No. Uh, but did you condone the excesses? No, I did not. I was eight years finance minister. Not one inch of government land did I take. Not one share of the government, including Bumi Putra shares. And not one contract I give to myself or my wife or my family. And that, alhamdulillah, thank God, I'm proud to repeat and reiterate. So, thank you again, uh, Professor Seidel, and uh, thank you for being uh, attentive. And uh, probably uh, tomorrow I will elaborate on the weaknesses side. Thank you very much again. Thanks.